Welcome to the Pike and Shot podcast, Thursday, January 27th, 2022. Today, I will be chatting with Scott Radnitz, Associate Professor and Director of the Ellison Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. His most recent book is Revealing Schemes, the Politics of Conspiracy in Russia and the Post-Soviet Region, and it was published in 2021. So glad you could join us today, Scott. Uh, Give us a little background on yourself. Um, yeah, hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Um, you were in my class uh, six or seven years ago, uh, so it's been a while. And uh, I've been at the University of Washington for uh, going on 14 years now. Uh, I'm a political scientist. I study the post-Soviet region, and uh, I'm mostly interested in what you might call dysfunctional politics, states that don't work very well, and regimes that are not very democratic or not at all. So... Uh, and uh, the post-Soviet region has lots of interesting uh, cases to study because there's lots of interesting developments that are happening. Um, it's a region that's kind of been unsettled. Countries are kind of finding their own way uh, and encountering a lot of problems along the way. And uh, it's an interesting region because uh, there's one large country in the, in the middle of it, and that's Russia. And a lot of smaller countries around it that have varying kinds of, of relationships with it. Uh, and Russia has... Uh, some grievances left over from the end of the Cold War, which it manifests in various ways. And it also has implications for American foreign policy. So for somebody interested in this region, there's plenty of things to keep you busy. Well, perfect. We'll get, we'll get into as much as we can today. Uh, we'll jump right in. Uh, basically, I was born in 1992. Every map that I've ever seen in school had all of the post-Soviet countries in different colors with nice, clean borders. I think a lot of people my age don't quite understand Russia's desire to expand to its historical geographic borders. Uh, for us, Kazakhstan is where Borat's from, and Eastern Europe is the budget part of our Euro trip. Uh, can you give us a quick overview on the post-Soviet sphere, what that means geographically, geopolitically, and culturally? It's not surprising that Americans don't think much about this region. Uh, it's, it's normal. Uh, most of these things that happen over there don't affect our daily lives. Russia is the exception because Russia is big and the Soviet Union was America's Cold War adversary and a lot of movies that have Russians as the bad guys. So that at least keeps that country uh, sort of on the radar screen of most Americans. The Soviet Union was a very large country that was the successor of the Russian Empire, which was an even larger country, although its size waxed and waned over the centuries. Uh, Different parts of the Soviet Union had different relationships, um, different uh, feelings about how how it was to be part of the Soviet Union. Some parts of the Soviet Union, uh, the less developed parts, uh, didn't have a strong dislike of of the Soviet Union. A lot of them uh, benefited from development policies uh, and modernized uh, pretty rapidly. Other parts of the Soviet Union, especially the Baltic states, uh, part of Ukraine, uh, some parts of the Caucasus like Georgia, really bridled at being part of this imperial structure uh, because there was pre-existing um, statehood, pre-existing nationalist sentiment, 
And people really resented the fact that they were basically subordinate to their Russian overlords. So when the time came, uh, I'm going to condense a very important part of history in, into 30 seconds. Gorbachev came to power in 1985, carried out some reforms. It unleashed a lot of forces that he could not have anticipated and people in various republics started clamoring uh, to go their own way. Started in the Baltic states, spread to the other uh, uh, anti-Russian anti or more nationalistic parts of, of the Soviet Union and eventually caused the collapse of this large country into 15 constituent parts. They were formerly known as Soviet Socialist Republics. Now they're independent states. And uh, you might have heard of some of them and other ones you might not have heard of at all. Uh, the question then is, uh, what does this mean? How, how do the various uh, players feel about being in this new, in, in the world, in a system where um, we were once one large country, now there are 15 smaller countries, although with one big one in the middle. And uh, the answer is it's complicated. Uh, Russia in particular has had some struggles in identifying what its purpose is in the post-Soviet era. And many Russians are content with uh, the borders as they are now, but some Russians, including possibly uh, the president, Vladimir Putin, are somewhat dissatisfied with the way the Soviet Union collapsed, with the way the Cold War ended, and uh, are resentful of the way the U.S. and other Western countries asserted their power in the 90s in ways that kind of locked in a system that the Russian government feels is, is unfair today. That's a very interesting point you bring up, that there's different ideologies within Russia right now. I, I want to ask, what is Putin's rallying ideology right now? Without communism, what do the war drums actually sound like when he starts beating them? Is, is it is it a is it an ethnic nationalism thing? Because they they have population problems that um, are going to as as the non-Russian population becomes a smaller percentage, um, and we'll get into this a little bit later. But but what is what is his current ideology that he's touting? Russia's let's say the Putin regime's claim to legitimacy is first having re built the Russian state, having restored its economy after the 90s, which was a very difficult time, having uh, improved governance of, of the Russian citizenry, although um, it's far from perfect, and uh, giving Russians a sense that their lives can be stable, that uh, their standard of living is as it should be, and, uh, and the government is doing its best to protect Russians from instability, terrorists, uh, outside threats. And this is the claim, at least. It doesn't mean that everybody buys it. In the early 2000s, though, um, Putin was very popular. He would have won his elections overwhelmingly in a, if they had been democratic, even though they weren't entirely um, free and fair, because people credited Putin for their uh, enhanced quality of life. But in more recent years, the economy has stagnated a little bit, uh, corruption, has grown to the point that it's undeniable and a lot of Russians experience corruption in, in their daily lives uh, and blame Putin for it as, as they should. So um, it's a little more complicated now. Putin has been in power since 2000. That's going on, that's 22 years now. So um, people have gotten tired of him, which creates a problem if you are afraid to leave power or you just enjoy being in power. So Putin is faced with this conundrum of what he can do and order to make his own life easier. Part of that involves, again, doing his best to claim that he's the best person to solve Russia's problems. And uh, 
he also dabbles in um, stoking international conflicts in ways that perhaps make Russians feel better about the standing of Russia in the world. Just like Americans want to feel that Russia, that, that America is an important country, is a respected country, uh, that America can go abroad and do things that make Americans feel good. Russians feel the same way. Russians also want Russia to be a respected country. Uh, they want Russia to be perceived as a great power, like the Soviet Union was. And so there are a lot of Russians that are at least sympathetic with, with a lot of Putin's rhetoric about how Russia is disrespected and might have to do something in order to, to regain the West's respect. And so, I mean, the, the, the Ukraine situation is currently dominating the headlines, but but there's there's been small incidents flaring up um, this year and and last year. The the border issues with Belarus and Poland, uh, the Russian involvement in the Kazakhstan stuff earlier this year, um, posturing with the Baltic and Scandinavian nations, uh, and just today there was there was a, a border skirmish uh, between uh, Tajikistan and uh, Kyrgyzstan, and. Um, I think there was three Tajik soldiers were killed, um, which which not directly involving Russia yet, but that's in the sphere. Um, do, do you see there being a coordinated effort that's led to sort of this chaos after relative stability or or is Putin just taking advantage of what he's been given? Because now he's he's basically helping rebuild the Kazakh government in what he wants, if I understand correctly. So the other thing that your listeners need to keep in mind is that after the Cold War ended, NATO, instead of dissolving, expanded and incorporated new members, which were either previously part of the uh, Soviet sphere of influence or were Soviet republics. And any country would feel insecure if a hostile military alliance started to expand to include countries physically, geographically nearby. It's not crazy to make this analogy, uh, which, which Russians often do. What if Russia or China were the head of a, a military alliance that now included Mexico or Canada? How would America feel about that? Or so, if you think about a superpower breaking up, it could be Texas. If the US broke up and suddenly Russia was in Texas, that's like their Ukraine. That's good. Okay, that's, that's even better, right. So it's important to see this from the perspective of some Russians, not all Russians, but some. Now, NATO, of course, claims they're a defensive military alliance. They would never do anything preemptively to try to harm Russia. They mean, they mean no, no, they don't pose any threat to Russia. However, uh, from the other side, it's, it's hard to accept that, right? All states are in charge of their own security. And it's natural then to feel a little bit threatened by other countries that uh, appear to be moving and encroaching on your borders. So from the Kremlin's perspective, uh, the incorporation of the Baltic states, plus Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Romania into NATO is a worrisome development. Then in 2008, the Bush administration promised that Georgia and Ukraine would one day become members of NATO. And if the Baltic states joining was bad, then the possibility of Georgia and Ukraine joining um, was dire for many Russians. 
And Ukraine in particular has uh, important historical, uh, cultural significance for Russia. The, so Ukraine had been part of the Russian Empire um, since, the, the, since the Russian Empire began expanding. And um, culturally, the, the two peoples are very close. Linguistically, they're very close. Um, there are a lot of ethnic Russians or, or Russian-speaking households in Ukraine. And Russia traces the origins of, um, of, of the regime uh, back to Kiev in, um, over a thousand years ago. So the prospect of Ukraine joining a Western American-led military alliance is dire from their perspective. So it's not that Putin wants to rebuild the Russian empire or restore the Soviet Union, but he certainly doesn't wanna have a Ukraine, Ukrainian government, which is anti-Russian and a Ukrainian state, which is part of a hostile military alliance. Well, and, and how much does geography actually play into this? Because I know that Ukraine is the, the, the part that attaches to Russia is basically a big plane that, that, the, that you could roll tanks through fairly easily. Do they want to expand to the Carpathians? Do they want to expand? To, is there a geographical element to the, the military side of this? There's the cultural side, but how does the geography of the region play into it? Well, sure. So Russia doesn't have any natural land barriers to protect it from invasion, which is another reason why it has been insecure historically. Um, the only thing protecting it is the is the vast distances involved and um, the harsh Russian winters, which saved Moscow from the Napoleonic invasion and from Hitler. But it's not just geography. So it's not that Russia wants to absorb or conquer Ukraine. Russia when I say Russia, I mean the Kremlin and, and the foreign policy thinkers around Putin. Um, they wouldn't mind if Ukraine voluntarily wanted to join with Russia, but I don't think they're intent on conquering Ukraine. Most vital for them is that Russia is that Ukraine at least does not have an anti-Russian foreign policy. And currently the Ukrainian government is very Western focused, intent on joining uh, European and Western institutions. Um, and the national mood is very anti-Russian. So since 2014, um, when there was a revolution that overthrew a more pro-Russian leader and replaced it with a more pro-Western government, uh, the Kremlin has had a very hard time um, dealing with this reality. And the possibility that Ukraine is drifting away from Russia in a way that might be uh, irreversible at some point. I, I want to touch. I want to get a little bit into your specialty in your book, um, talking about conspiracies and politics. If I was on the streets in Moscow uh, and I, I found a Russian patriot, a guy waving a flag, and I asked him, "Why do we? Why are they building up on the border of Ukraine?" What What would they answer me? Is Is it Is it that well? Is it that simple of a message to them, or are there other messages about uh, the the Western influence and things going on? Average Russians will have been exposed to the narrative that the U.S. and Europe <clears throat> want Russia to be weak and will go out of their way to ensure that Russia doesn't have uh, a say in world politics. More extreme versions of, the, of a conspiracy theory are that NATO somehow plans to invade Russia, maybe through Ukraine or through, or through the soft underbelly of, of Georgia, through Western allies. Um, in order to 
steal Russia's natural resources or just to punish Russia because uh, the West is, is Russophobic and has, and has always been so. And there are varying uh, variations of, of that claim, which have to do with Russian liberals or uh, more um, Western oriented Russians, democracy activists who genuinely want Russia to be a democracy, not because they want the West to conquer it, but because they think democracy would be better for Russians. But it's easy then for nationalists to rope in Russian Democrats with this, this Western threat. So there's a lot of that rhetoric that's been going on for decades now. Russians have been exposed to it. It doesn't mean they all buy it, though. Right? Just because we hear messages in the media doesn't mean that everybody believes it. Well, it's like, general, you, it's like you said, we, we see Russians as the bad guys in every TV and video game, but we don't necessarily want to start a war today with them. Yeah, this is right. And there's, and there's certainly mixed opinion in the U.S. when it comes to Russia. Some is various by political party. But in general, most Americans don't think about Russia very much. And that's a little bit different from the other side. I think at least in the public discourse, people hear a lot about America. America is a lot more on the minds of Russians than Russia is on the minds of Americans, which is not surprising. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to jump even more into your book. Um, give us a little background on, on the topic. And and I'm about two thirds of the way through right now. It's fascinating. Um, did you know when you started researching and writing that the intersection of conspiracy and politics would be so relevant in 2022? Uh, because you even get into American politics and where we've gone and um, historically less conspiracy minded, um, depending on which era you look at. But um, uh, did you know that this was going to, or how do you feel about this being more relevant than you may have thought? Yeah. When I started the book, when I first had the idea for it, it was clear that conspiracy theories were a thing, quote unquote, in Russia and post-Soviet countries. It was not a thing at the time in the U.S. So um, there was no question that whenever I, I finished the book and when I started, it wasn't clear when that would be, that conspiracy theories were still going to be an important part of the political discourse in Russia, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, Ukraine, etc. But for whether for better or worse, um, conspiracy theories have now become part of the political discourse in the U.S. and uh, a lot of other and a lot of democracies. I started writing the book before Trump even declared as a candidate, so it wasn't clear <clears throat> which direction uh, the U.S. was heading. But it should be said, there's always been a popular tradition of conspiracy theories in America that makes the American cultural discourse look a lot more kind of like Russians and, and other non-democratic countries than, it, than America looks like, say, um, Scandinavia or advanced European countries. There's something about Americans' distrust of power, um, its ambivalent relationship with government that makes conspiracy theories popular, attractive, um, and always kind of bubbling up under the surface uh, and, and occasionally breaks through into politics and, and public officials then decide to use them for their own purposes. So things have changed in the, in the last few years, but um, it's not a complete shock that conspiracy theories um, did emerge to become so prominent in, in the U.S. Yeah, I guess there's been there's been enough documentaries about the JFK assassination to, to back that up um, it, without going too much or giving i know we could talk for for hours about it but what's what is your opinion on ukraine do you think it's it's a putin 
uh, posturing or is it, is it really like, what are they trying to get out and how far are they willing to push? Because they don't have the manpower to, to lose it. I don't know how much you, you go into demographics and things, but Russia's on a decline. And, and as far as demographics and the number of young people, they're an aging country. Um, do, do you think that this is like strike while the iron's hot, stri- do this posture while we can get 200,000 men on the border? Um, and they're just trying to get that, maybe secure what's happened in the Donbass. Um, or, or, or is there, is there more, how much are they willing to push, I guess, to get what they want? So I will not hazard a prediction, especially if it's on tape. And it's somewhat foolish to do so because nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen because foreign policy is centralized in Putin's brain. It's very likely that even Putin's own foreign minister doesn't know what the plan is. The argument for why Russia would be doing this now has to do with relative power in that Russia feels confident in its economy, in the military. Uh, Russia may perceive the West as being weak and perceive Biden as a weak leader or somebody who's not willing to risk a military confrontation, especially after the the clumsy withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, While Ukraine is also building up its own military. So if it's looking ahead, it may see that this is the best time to strike because the relative power dynamic is only gonna work against Russia in the future. Another reason why it might be now is Putin is getting up there in years. Uh, legally, he can keep on running for president and he could stay in power until 2036. But he's, um, what is he, 70 now? Yeah, I think he's six, 68, but something around there, yeah. Getting up there, getting up there. Not as old as our president, but but still. Um, but we know, uh, we know when he's going to leave, though. Right. That's, yes, we do. So the thing is, um, Putin might be thinking about his legacy. And maybe he's thinking, because of the military balance issues that I mentioned, um, this might be the time to preserve his legacy so that he's not considered to be the leader who quote unquote lost Ukraine. Um, a lot of Putin's self-image has been about restoring Russian greatness. And if he thinks that he can prevent Ukraine from one day joining NATO, or just to give the West a black eye, just to show the world that Russia can fight back, and is not to be pushed around, that might be worth a short-term sacrifice, whatever that may be, whatever um, whatever the military plan is. So that could be his thinking. Alternatively, it could all be a feint. It could, it could all just be posturing because whether his ultimate plan is invasion or getting some kind of diplomatic concession, uh, we would be observing the same thing. He would be mobilizing all the troops showing that an invasion is possible, he would do that even if his only goal was diplomatic, which is why it's impossible right now to tell the difference. Well, I know that if uh, if people want to learn more about the Ukraine situation, you said there is a, an event going on uh, with the Ellison Center next week, I believe. And uh, I'll, find a, I'll find a link to that and put it in the show notes if people want to join. Um, that, would be, that would be great for some of the listeners, I'm sure, if you want to pitch Tuesday. that. Tuesday, February 1st, 11.30 Pacific time, uh, 12.30 Eastern, uh, open to the public. If you register, I'll be moderating. And I have three experts. 
Perfect. Sounds great. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here today. This has been uh, a great introduction to the situation. I think a lot of people, I've been getting a lot of texts and people asking or uh, put news stories up on my my Instagram feed and uh, people asking, hey, wh- why does Russia even care? Why does why why is this uh why is this going on why now um and why in the winter um and yeah this has been eye opening for for me and i'm sure for a lot of other people uh i hope it was informative Thanks yeah again. thank you so much um and we will see you again possibly another time if something happens maybe we'll 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 come back to you for a follow up <laughs>